This episode is supported by Arts Council England. Welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. Thanks for listening. Um, I've got Beth Bramich here in the studio to introduce her interview with John Hoskins. How you doing, Beth? I'm pretty good. Um, Beth's tummy just rumbled. Are you hungry? I'm really hungry. When was the last time you ate? I think it's like a 9.30 late breakfast situation. Yeah, what did you have? I had loads of jam on toast because I am four years old. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe we can do this quick so you can go and eat some food. Mm-hmm. You spoke to John, but you spoke to John for a long time. Yeah, a couple of hours. Yeah, and it was at his house? Yeah, so I visited him in De Beauvoir. Um, and we spent a couple of hours talking about uh, the book that he made about the area, Own de Beauvoir, and uh, it was a very hot day. It was a very hot, soundproofed room. Oh, yeah, he put loads of duvets up or something. Yeah, so we were insulated. Uh, Yeah, so we go straight in with a conversation about the housing association in the local area. So um, that was an area that there was a lot of activism from the local people. And in John's book, there are interviews. um, So these extended quotes uh, from a lot of different people in the area who were very young at the time. So this is late 1968, 69. And it's about a 15 year period where there was a lot of um, people who were able to make changes in the area. Mm. And he talks kind of generally about the housing association movement and the history of that as well yeah so he kind of thinks about that in a wider sense and and you get a feel for that in the book about the kind of individuals that were involved we also talk about um an event that launched the book one of the key people uh involved in the housing association at the time was a guy called Stuart weir and the way that john launched his book which had been developed over two years in association with open school east where he'd been based and began the research there um he had a chance to invite Stuart to come and talk in a big public situation and Stuart's a very charismatic man that later went on to become the editor of the New Statesman so uh, it was a really great introduction to the book um, but um, we also kind of have a more in-depth conversation we look about the we look at the central character that John kind of uses to engage you with the area and find different ways into it um, who is at very odds with Stuart Weir's um, very public persona. Mm. We also touch on a project, um, an earlier project that John did, which was about amateur urban ecologists and their work. Um, So they were people exploring the River Lee and uh, digging out weeds from (laughs) bits of uh, river near the Olympic Park. Okay, so this is Beth talking to John Hoskins. Enjoy. Thanks. The Housing Association and that wave of the Housing Association movement, to my understanding came about in large part because popular opinion, public opinion, had swung away from um, social housing uh, being achieved through entirely newly built um, council blocks and towards the refurbishment of existing homes and the reallocation of those for social housing. So the one in the Beauvoir um, was funded by the GLC, um, but there's also funds if they'd wanted to take it from Hackney Council and I think from central government as well. So with tragic relevance, the Ronan Point disaster, which is this tower block in Newham that partly collapsed, killing a lot of people in 1968, I think. 
I think it's largely historicized as the turning point, if you wanted to point to one moment, where popular opinion decisively swung away from um, tower blocks, new builds, and towards um, rehabilitating existing housing stock. And it's when the conservation movement really got going and the Victorian Society and John Bitchman's involvement in that and the Hackney Society more locally and stuff. So in that respect, they were beneficiaries of... um, And in a lot of respects, actually, they were beneficiaries of uh, contemporary larger tendencies that they aligned with historically and were able to piggyback upon, you know. The um, the people who were still in the area when you were... So you could describe them earlier as um, the survivors, people who were still living in the area. Oh, um, yeah. Well, you know. Is there, is there a difference between <laughs> those two things? Uh, well, I think I said they, um, you know, the surviving uh, residents from that time because... You know, the project came at a time when uh, a lot of the people involved began to pass away. Um, so the the people who I interviewed from the very earliest days of this group, so moved to the area in '68, are now what late seventies, early eighties, I think. So they're very, very young when uh, they started getting involved. About half of the images in the book came from one collection, a man called Graham Parsi, who should be name-checked. And it was his son, who, one of his sons, who is the co-executor of his estate and his collection. He gave me access to that um, after I'd interviewed him initially because Graham sadly passed away a few years ago. Do you feel like the the gains that were made in that kind of um, small area of London, mm. it seems like they saw things that they put into action, things that they wanted to see change, they were able to enact. Do you feel like there's um, there's something useful in looking at at a moment where there was kind of, um, can I ever say this word, uh, like political e- efficacy? Yeah, I do. I think it's worth stressing in terms of the efficacy that their action had, how moderate their ambitions were mm. both in the sense of being polit- politically moderate and uh, moderate in scale and scope. Um, they weren't radical. Um, they, like I said, they did help a lot of people access um, welfare and they were um, extremely socially conscientious in that respect. But they were, by and large, young middle class professionals driving it all. Um, it's equally worth stressing that they um, went to enormous lengths to make sure that the makeup of the community groups that they built up uh, reflected um, the different kinds of people in the area, the people who have been there um, for decades and the people who just moved in and everything in between. So in one sense, if they couldn't have achieved what they wanted to, then who the hell can, you know, in as much as they were they were well-educated, they were well-resourced, they were socially privileged um, in all sorts of ways. Um, most of the people at the forefront of it were young white men. Um, and they were doing things very pragmatically um, that aligned with the political currents of the day. So 
they almost certainly wouldn't have been successful in stopping the demolition of the whole area if the pound hadn't been devalued by central government, by the Labour government in 1967, because that meant that in all the 68 elections there's a huge swing away from Labour. So Hackney, which had been this so-called single-party state um, with a rock-solid old Labour um, control for as long as anyone can remember, suddenly swung to the Tories. And Tory council had to draft in aldermen from other councils because the people who'd found themselves in, um, in charge of a London borough had no idea what they were doing. The refurbishment of the housing stock and the work that the community group did to get people hot running water for the first time or the rest of it was exactly in, aligned with um, what the Conservatives wanted to do to differentiate themselves from um, Labour houses and policies. When we talked earlier about this idea of like... Um these people with this kind of moral agenda or kind of like a notion of moral justice. Mm. Um, I was wondering, they don't seem like an angry group of people. No. <laughs> well, are they angry? I think when uh, they just become homeowners and then moved in to find that um, there was a long-standing and much advanced plan to demolish their home and the whole neighbourhood they're very angry and I don't know whether that anger comes from uh, noble defensible um, or selfish space I you know who knows but maybe there's something that I want to stress in all of this I think which is that I didn't set out to find people the like of which I'd want to emulate exactly in my own life. In a lot of the examples you spoke about of people I've come to work with in projects in the past, um, there's often quite a marked banality to what they're doing. Like I'm really interested in the the political force of the, the sheer banality of bureaucracy and bureaucratic processes and how that can become inscribed in collective action which can often begin in an entirely non-institutionalised space. Again, the de Beauvoir example is a good one because um, when these plans to demolish the area came to light, there just wasn't the time to institutionalise um, and, and produce some enormous um, bureaucratic edifice that could um, take on the state in its own terms, on its own way. It, ha um, it was literally, you know, let's ha they held the first meeting and 200 people turned up and the second meeting was two weeks later and no one really knew how that would proceed in, um, in advance, I don't think. And you talked about urban ecologists and stuff. That... That project was interested in the narrative and spectacle that those amateur urban ecologists were working against, which, of course, was the um, Olympics and the development around the Lee Valley. And my interest came to be in the way that, that they would effectively, at least as it seemed... Um, set about creating narratives of resistance against that with 
their expertise and with their understanding of the the plant species, the invasive plant species that um, that dominate that landscape, that to most of us look like a fecund, you know, riverbank or such like. But there's a banality there, you know. It's it's people turning up with a van full of waders and big rubber gloves that you can't scratch your face and because you know he's covered in chemicals or whatever and wading down to the riverbank and pulling up a load of plants all day on a voluntary basis where something bright and shiny and spectacular um just a few yards away ensues um and yeah equally with the 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 projects at open school east um you know, I've talked, I kind of, it's almost embarrassing for me to talk about a lot of the research that I did for that because a lot of it's really boring, you know, and I have to do a lot of work to take myself from the space where I'm doing all that research and into a space where that can become an interesting project for me and people that I'm working with to pursue. And that's when a lot of um, the small and self-contained works that I do come in. So um, the short pieces of writing and performance lectures and things, those instances are really useful for me to just claim the right to remove myself from all of that responsibility, the responsibility to the material that I've gathered and the responsibility to the or at least immediate responsibility to the people that I'm working with and just take what I found to be the most interesting things and work with them on different registers. And again, you know, there's there's an integral specificity to those pieces of work because then you do find yourself in a gallery context. Uh, that's That's where that work is disseminated and th those are the perfectly representational works that that shouldn't be confused with other uh, points in my practice where I'm, a, I'm trying to do something that's less recognisably, singularly representational. Do you want to have a quick bash at just saying what your book's about? Um, Is that useful? Yeah, so like the fiction yeah. part of it and stuff. The book essentially comprises two parts. The first is uh, linear narrative fiction, and that's the bulk of the book. For a long time, or for mo long moments along the way, it looked like that was going to be all the book was. And then the second part um, are these related accounts, the extended quotes, series of extended quotes from people who are either involved in all this collective action or have some close relationship to it. So the narrative fiction itself is written, or it's rather presented as uh, the recovered journal of a man who lives in the area's fictional, entirely fictional resident, of course. So over the course of the narrative, it becomes clear to the reader, I think, that his understanding of all sorts of things is deeply at odds with what you'd expect them to be. So that includes the significance of the material makeup of the neighbourhood and his relationship to other people in the neighbourhood and the means by which he can accumulate knowledge and understanding of the neighbourhood and even um, in that respect uh, his understanding of cause and effect um, becomes very odd as the story ensues. At the outset, and I don't think 
like this is ruining anything because it's in the first couple of pages, he discovers that um, the constitution of the area, as he calls it, and like so many terms in the narrative, the word constitution as a double sense of um, a political constitution and, of course, also the material constitution of the neighbourhood, the constitution of the area is going to be violated by somebody proposing to extract material from the area for a reason that I won't give away. Um, and so he launches this kind of investigation, I guess is the most um, dispassionate way you could put it, into what that means for the neighbourhood and ultimately trying to prevent it from happening. So over the course of whatever it is, 200 or so pages of the book, a lot of material from the research uh, images, documents, not anecdotes, but I guess linguistic terms, you could call it, um, are in introduced within his journal. Can I just ask you, not wishing to put you on the spot, but what resonated with you about the like content of the narrative at least? I think I think sometimes to to cope with the world, mm. you take mink as a logical starting point, and you follow it, mm. and that can at times, as you say, like leave you at odds with the world. But it's an approach to sort of trying to take, you know, your feelings about something, mm. things that you're hearing, things that you're trying to make sense of, and you can kind of go on one tack. Mm. And I think there's sort of I've got a, a kind of interest in um, what some people term like neuro diversity. So what diversity? Uh, neuro a diversity. Okay. Uh, so the idea that um, there's a normative understanding of things like autism and thing and different uh, ways of being, mm. which is that you treat through therapy and usually drugs mm. to normalise an individual into. Mm ways that society finds acceptable mm. which have come to through arbitrary means mm. uh, or you can spend time with that person mm. as an individual and find out what they're interested in mm. so there's uh, methods around engaged interaction or something like that where you follow the person and you mm. see what's important to them and how mm. they approach things and I think you tend to learn a great deal Mm. by doing that and I'm not saying that the person that you represent in your story necessarily has any of these definable conditions but their way of being is about some of the very real fears and anxieties about living in places which are changing radically uh, mm. um, you know there's like a huge amount of negative emotion that can build up with the idea of precarity mm. or the idea of loss or like a material loss mm. is a huge uh, gap, but I think we sort of pretend like these things don't matter quite often, or we mm. have to kind of, you know, it's not pragmatic, it's conceptual the idea that progression is always good, mm. but we kind of take it as um, a I'm going to use the word embodied truth and not knowing what that phrase means. I'm very sweaty. Um, how I experienced the book was that I went to a talk with someone who was incredibly engaging and charismatic, kind of talking from the position of a you know, someone who had enacted change and felt really good about themselves, mm. I, I perceived, mm. from the fact that they were able to make these small gains and they felt like they were kind of justified in their, you know, li their liberal beliefs mm. and what they held as important 
have played out in the fact that things had changed in the local area for the better. They were able mm. to defend things. Mm. They were able to, to see the, the change they wanted to see in the world. Mm. But a lot of us don't mm. ever see that, and we feel at odds with the world a lot of the time. And I think mm. sort of staying with someone that, you know, it was it was a, you could you could tell that I could sort of see that maybe you had something like a sculptural background because of the interest in materiality mm. and it was a way to kind of have a fiction that spoke about time mm. and place in a way that there was intersection there. Something like you know, like I get really engaged with like if I try and think not too hard, but I try and think a little bit about like John Latham's time and space and the idea that it totally makes sense to me that the event is more important. You know, you, we connect together events and we make mm. sense of them, but mm. I'm someone, I feel, that's very much in the moment of the event mm. and I don't tend to have, like, a huge amount of memories because I move very quickly from thing to thing. Mm. So that always chimes with me in terms of my understanding of the world mm. and how time is made up and sort of following a character that was, you know, definitely descending into something very complex mm. But also, they created structure for themselves mm. through the place, mm. and they made themselves a visible part of it. I mean, he's definitely getting at stuff that's really significant. So, again, another example that um, is introduced through, in this case, a letter written by the narrator, the you know the journal holder. Um, is the the design of the neighbourhood, the master plan for this neighbourhood, um, which was produced in the 1820s. Um, and that was um, that's perfectly within this historical moment where um, intentional communities um, were being founded and established across North America as the frontier, so-called, pushed west. And... Also in this country, the Napoleonic Wars had ended and the demand for all the armament had, uh, had of course, collapsed. And you had all these people um, unemployed and with Elizabethan poor laws still in place. So a lot of proposals were made for essentially intentional communities for, um, for the for the great un masses of unemployed poor the really sharp distinction that we'd expect to make now between something utopian purely utopian project on the one hand and on the other hand um as a, a prototypical welfare state and prototypical um urban planning so that period and robert owen in particular um the guy who features a little bit in the afterword of the, the book, um, you often find as the first chapter in a history of urban planning in this country. Um, and so in that instance, that um, fictional conceit allows those two things to be drawn together. Yeah, and equally, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead with spoilers now because hopefully the book would still be enjoyable otherwise. But there's a section of the book where the guy finds himself underground and he finds himself trying to navigate underground. Um, and of course he's within the neighbourhood and uh, he's just spent the first three quarters of this narrative obsessing of the materiality and the, the spaces and the spatial divisions of the neighbourhood. 
And all of a sudden, he finds himself essentially within that space, but with all, with all of that falling away from relevance. So I think there's one at one point a mention of um, the tree roots coming through to the underground spaces that he's in, and it's just these little uh, moments where his dense um, spatial understanding of the of the neighbourhood becomes relevant once again before it proceeds from view straight away. Who wanted to own de Beauvoir? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you just think of a title for something and it kind of, I don't know, for me, if anything comes too easily, I'll, my impulse will be to reject it, um, which probably isn't always the right way to go. But as the project went on, it just seemed ever more compellingly applicable and relevant and compelling as a title for the publication, particularly because this this issue of ownership and the political um, importance that that suggests, particularly when you talk about a neighbourhood, um, just seemed to manifest on so many uh, registers. So there's this obvious thing of um, the um, local government at the time wanting to transform the neighbourhood into a completely different vision of what housing stock should be and what kind of community interaction there should be. So one of the images that made it into the book was... um, Actually, no, we had to mock it up so we didn't get... I think, so we didn't get done for copyright. Um, it's from the original plans of the uh, of one of the estates in the neighbourhood. And, uh, you know, you always have uh, little human figures put into elevations to um, give you a sense of scale and all the rest of it. And rather than just blank outlines or such like, there's older women looking over balconies and talking to um, young women. It's all in- intensely gendered, the whole thing. Um, the young women with the um, prams on the street below and the young children. Um, and uh, there's a lot been written that I came across in research about the, and I guess it's an obvious point, the very top-down um, conceptions and even impositions of um, community um, in that time among the architects of um, post-war social housing developments. I mean, that's a good example of this struggle for ownership, if you like, because obviously um, there was an attempt to impose this very rigidly um, spatial vision and ownership of that among a very small group of people, ultimately, but also um, attempt to own the narrative and the narrative future of that neighbourhood. The residents who came to organise together usurped that, by and large, I think, um, and they did come, come to own the narrative and own the, um, the future that's now past, I guess, of, of the neighbourhood. The accumulation narrative 
over those 10 years, 10 or 15 years, and the momentum that it had for decades going forward into the future, that seemed pretty compelling to me as a, as a form of ownership. I think that was sort of my question about um, transplanting. Uh, so the idea of transplanting, you know, the, the knowledge that you've built up in that one place and how mm. you've been able to understand it and how you've been able to... You know, I think the, the both the fiction and the related accounts felt like they came from a place of, you know, dense research mm. and a feel for the space, the place, the place you're in. Um, I think for me, the idea of living in London for more than a decade in one place, mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, I don't, I don't feel like I've had a sense of community in any... I've been here for... Five years mm. in a different place uh, at a rate of more than one a year. Yeah. So the idea of building up a community sense in that kind of place, that obviously I could, I could sort of feel it while I was holding the book. Mm. Yeah, I think it just made it, it, made it a more convincing narrative. Um, last month I went to give a talk in Glasgow, which was part of an event by a gallery called Market Gallery that was losing its gallery space after 20 years. And uh, it always had that space at the behest of a housing association that emerged almost exactly the same time as the housing association de Beauvoir in the 70s. Um, and it's, again, a, a, a situation that is only intelligible um, if taken in its perfect specificity so um i might get this slightly wrong so don't hold me to it but with the post office being privatized the post office in that neighborhood is closing down or rather post office don't want to continue in that building but because of the demographic makeup of of that neighborhood it's um the housing association the housing association controls um i think the majority of properties um there's a lot of people with very low income and they um are unable to get normal bank accounts from high street banks because the post office has always as i understand it from following this event at least the post office has always been the bank account of last resort if you like so most of the residents can only bank with the post office so the housing association has to, it just has to keep the post office in that neighbourhood. But it, now with the privatisation, it has to it has to offer a, an appealing package to uh, the post office to get them to stay in the area. And the only way they can do that is to offer them these spaces that Market Gallery has always been in. Um, and one of the key speakers, I guess, at this event um, and definitely one of the most um, effective speakers was uh, from the Housing Association itself. You know, they continue to have a very good relationship with Market Gallery. And they, wa they want to help them in some way in the future, and they'll, Market Gallery will keep a small part of their space. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that, I guess, with the research that, uh, and, the, uh, and the project that I've done in... Uh, de Beauvoir towards the book to take that and go and speak about it in that context in Glasgow I think people were really responsive to it and particularly the aspects of it to do with narrative and um, the way that 
political institutions and local political institutions or and localized collective action can have these can come to have these social and yeah aesthetic functions it's a really important thing but it's a really hard thing to take something as politically raw potentially as as threatened but essential housing stock and think about what political salience it has and the relevance of aesthetics however understood to that um and hopefully the book project does that and hopefully going to talk at an event like that where there's nothing you know everyone there at that event has the very best of intentions and a very um, well aligned politically even in their personal politics but everyone finds themselves in this situation that is just completely regrettable um, and kind of desperate for all sorts of reasons it's really gratifying I guess to find that artist voices can be important in those sorts of spaces So that was myself and Jonathan Hoskins talking in a very hot room in De Um I want to say thanks to everyone for listening and thank you very much to John for his time. Thanks. Thanks, Beth. Thanks.